Hello and welcome to Beampod, the only Marillion podcast which doesn't feature a member of Marillion. I'm Paul Rose, so you might know me as Mr. Biffo. Go and buy my new album on Beamp, 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 Bandcamp. Beamp, uh, Beamp, that's what I nearly said. Bandcamp. Uh, and I'm here with my dear wife, Sanya. Hello, everybody. So this week, we're done with letters. We're done. For now. For now. We're done. We're moving on. We're moving to the next phase of the band's journey. And before we can get to the next bona fide Marillion album, we've got a chunk of time that in which the band released. What, why are you frowning at me? I, I was wondering what went through your mind because you smiled. I smiled because I paused, but when they listened to it, I'm going to have cut that pause out. Oh. I paused for a long time trying to find my words. But through the miracle of editing, it'll be gone. Poof. Magic. Poof, poof. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's like the pause um, at the end of the song, This Strange Engine, before that um, weird piano laughing bit at the end. <laughs> That's what I was trying to do. Oh, is that why you laughed just then? No, no. I laughed just because I can't stop. Because if I did, can't I'd stop, cry. Can't stop. <laughs> So we're going to talk about the solo albums that came out between um, 1996 and early 97. They're not technically all solo, solo albums, but they are side projects, probably more accurately. Mm. Um, But before we get to that, let's just catch up with where we are. So Afraid of Sunlight had come out summer 1995. It had not done well by past standards, of the band it was a disappointment for the well, band and record label which given that the band were already on thin ice with them can i just interrupt you for a second you said it had not done well by past standards of the band are you comparing that to their the height of their success with fish or are you comparing it also to it's previous ba- it's, albums it's both to this it, point? it 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 was a downward trajectory that they were on, frankly. Really? That's really sad because it's such a great album. Yeah, and it was, you know, as we know, Q Magazine, album of the year. Yeah. Uh, so, but whatever, their sort of stylistic wild swings that they'd taken over the previous couple of albums had just alienated people, clearly. Mm. So, um, so it was pretty clear that EMI were not renewing their contract which Afraid of Sunlight anyway had been a, a case of John Arneson saying they could do it quickly and cheaply, which Meridian didn't exactly have a track record of anyway. But before they went, um, there was one more album that came out on EMI, which as when uh, Fish had left the band, they released a double live album called Made Again. You look really confused. They re- Wait... After Fish left, they released The Thieving Magpie, a a double live album which had the whole of Misplaced Childhood on one side. That's what I was trying to say. And this had the whole of what on one side? Go on, see if you can work it out. Brave? Yes. Oh, was it? Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, side one was Splintering Heart, Easter, No One Can, Waiting to Happen, Cover My Eyes, The Space, Hooks in You, Beautiful Lavender, sorry, Beautiful Kaylee, Lavender, Afraid of Sunlight, and King. Side two was 
Brave in its entirety. It's not a bad live album. It sounds, I mean, even though, as with Thieving at Magpie, it wasn't just one gig that was recorded, it was several gigs that were sort of then spliced together. Mm. Um, I think it was a relatively decent summation of where they were at at that point. It did also confirm EMI's uh, decision to drop them because it only got to number 37. Which isn't bad, so thanks a lot, EMI. Well, it is for a band that that only, I don't know, 10 years previously were having number one albums. And Marillion were not a cheap band. They were a big outfit. You know, big mm. tours. Uh, you know, they had been a big band. So there was a lot of money involved when it came to Marillion. And you know, I weren't prepared to fork it out. So, so anyway, um, so Marillion left EMI. Still in debt to EMI. Oh, yeah, really? They, they still owed EMI a lot of money. Oh no! Yeah, which they hadn't managed to. to again, you know, why would EMI keep them? They owed them a load of money. Uh, and they signed to Castle Communications, which I think was a three-album deal. And because of what they owed, they tried to retain some more control over their music. So. They they licensed the albums to Castle while retaining the song rights themselves, which is a different deal, I think, to to how it went with um, with the EMI deal. We'll get into it more over the next three albums as we talk about them. But as Mark Kelly had said in an interview a while back, he said, uh, we thought it was a good thing at the time to be with an independent. We didn't feel we were getting the love we needed from EMI. So by moving to a smaller label, we became a bigger fish in a smaller pond, if you'll excuse the pun. Uh, it sort of was like that, except that Castle were just trying to make as much as they could out of our existing fan base. There was no desire or investment to grow the band back up again, which is what we always wanted. Which is kind of what John Arneson, when we interviewed him, said. Mm-hmm. That was the that was the sensible thing to do. So you can see where the, the split came there when, you know, Mark says that, that they wanted a... A label behind them who would properly support them and allow them to be big again. Mm. So, in this sort of gap before recording their first album uh, with Castle, mm-hmm. uh, all of the band members, barring Mark Kelly, were working on these side projects. Well, what was Mark Kelly working on at that time? I can't remember when I interviewed Mark. It was around this time, it was certainly mid-90s that I interviewed him. Mm. And he said at the time that he, he was working on his solo project because everyone else was doing one. I see. That was his Dante's Inferno Yes, I remember you mentioning thing, that. So he a, was working on a solo project. Yeah, or at least had an intention to, mm. uh, which he sent some of the, the demos to Stephen Wilson and never heard back. <laughs> bit like your requests to have him on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I don't expect for a second that he's going to look at his Facebook messages and go, yeah, I'll come on. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Don't I even know. know if he runs his own Facebook page, let's face it. So the, the the first of these three side projects that came out was an album called, called Crossing the Desert by an outfit called Iris, which was made up of Ian and Pete on the rhythm section and a guy calls um, apologies because I'm going to massacre this name Sylvain Gouverneur does that sound about right 
Is it French? Yeah. I'm not. I'm really not good with yeah, French well, pronunciation. He uh, he was from a band called Arakeen, which had supported Marillion on the season's end tour, so he was familiar to the band. So, I mean, I'll just read out how it came about. This is just this is an interview from from shortly after it mm-hmm. it came out. So he said in um, the beginning of '95, the members of Marillion all had free time, and Ian said he thought we should try to make an album together. So it was Ian that that instigated this. Um, at first there was a time of uncertainty when we didn't know if we would use pieces I had already written or if we would try to create new ones from jams it quickly became quite clear that that we wanted to do an instrumental album which represented a challenge and interesting approach in addition I had a lot of instrumental tracks written that I wanted to record and this concept pleased him because it reminded him of the time when he played with (laughs) so I printed out my notes right Mm. Mm. I didn't change the colour of the text to the name of, of that of whoever he played with from white to black so I can read it. So you can't so read it. It looks like it's notes. redacted. <laughs> the name must not be known. I'm going to tell you who it was. Um, this is going so well. Steve Hackett, which of course Ian famously played with. Uh, so a little later, just as the project was shaping up, he said he'd like to participate. Um, oh, sorry, Pete said he'd like to participate. So Pete muscled in on um, on the project. So it was primarily... Yeah, they didn't ask him or invite him. He was just yeah. like, I'm in on that. Can I join in? Can I play with you? Can I be part of Iris, please? Ian? Ian? I've got some free time. Can I can I play? Ian Most of the time Ian and Pete kept the parts I'd written because they were close to their own sensibility. Sometimes they personalised them and that always added to the song. On memory of Eagle, love the name. Pete didn't play the fretless bass, which was done on synthesizer. Um so, uh blah blah blah. Pete guessed Ian's breaks in advance and joined him exactly where they should be right away it was like magic uh, Ian and Pete were enthusiastic in a fresh state of mind because it was the first project they'd done outside of Meridian for a long time the album benefited from the strength and finesse of Meridian's rhythm section at its best so was this before Pete uh, had joined Transatlantic oh yeah 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 this was a good few and then he's and Edison's children yeah 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 they're they're, they're much later they're more sort of 21st century Projects. Ah, oh, I think I don't I know. Did when did the first that. the first Transatlantic did it come out in two thousand or ninety nine? I can't remember. But yeah, so so they didn't write it as such. It was more the chance to just play some other music. Mm. So I guess there was a degree of pressure off. Yeah. Um, Is there a reason why it's only available on YouTube? Yeah, it's not anywhere on any streaming. Is it on SoundCloud or anything? I I haven't found it on on any streaming site. I had to listen to it on YouTube. I used to have, well, I probably still got a copy of it in my box of CDs down the shed. Um, But yeah, it's been a long time since since I listened to it. Uh, And well, do you want to say what you thought of it? Because I mean, it's not like we've got lyrics to dissect here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think it's a crime that it's not available (laughs) on other streaming platforms. Okay, look, listener, listener, I'm telling you now, Sonia bloody loves this album. I do. I really loved it, and a couple of times I wanted to listen to it when I was out and had I didn't want to listen to it on YouTube because you can't. Mm. Um, So that was yeah. 
finish a sentence, please. So that was frustrating. Um, yeah, it definitely, if we should start a petition to release Iris because, okay, why are you laughing? <laughs> release release iris i'm just amused by your enthusiasm i love it 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 was um i'm amused by it because it's such a proggy album right yeah it's so proggy and prior to meeting me you didn't even know what prog rock was yeah but i would have appreciated it for its sound without without labels yeah but that's what i'm amused by is because you so clearly love prog yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you didn't even know what it was. No, I, I didn't. I'd never heard the label. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I found it like it was a bit heavier, and it sounded like a, a lot more experimental than traditional Marillion. Well, it's, for me, it, it's, it's Marillion only in the sense that really Pete and Ian are on it. I mean, they haven't written any of it, but, mm. um, but for me, it. It, there are there are bits of guitar that sound rothery esque. That's that's fairly clear um, that there's an influence there. Uh, I I don't know. It's how do, do you compare it to Marillion? I don't think I necessarily could, but it, it's certainly atmospheric. And, it's, yeah, it's and really atmospheric. Has a kind of sort of conceptual feel, even though I don't know if there is a concept because it's just music, but as opposed to music with words. Mm. I really like it as well, and I'd forgotten how good it was. It's gorgeous. So I wrote, I really love, love, love the piano in tracks two or three. I mean, I could have checked. (laughs) That's thorough. Could have checked. This is talking about the music on the whole. Um, There are parts that I think would fit perfectly in the soundtrack to Jesus Christ Superstar. Is this because we watched Jesus Christ Superstar over Easter by accident? Probably, but like after watching it and then listening to Iris Crossing the Desert... It was it it worked. I thought that could really work well. It's together. really powerful and a kind of really so nice. Powerful. But it's also really melodic. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I think it's an absolute crime that this isn't on the racket. Store. It is. Yeah, it's a crime. It. I would buy this. I mm. would buy the CDs, even though we don't have a CD player. Or I would at least stream it if it was. Well, on we have the CD Spotify. somewhere. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. <laughs> somewhere. I genuinely really like it, and it's not. Uh, it's nicely produced. As I say, it's got a punch to it while still being melodic and in places atmospheric. And it hasn't got that slightly eggy prog thing going on that sometimes winds me up. Oh, what do you mean by eggy? Sounded fake. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by eggy? No, that's even more fake. I don't know how you want me to say it. Okay, what's going on, by the way, everyone? I have to stop the recording because a man delivered our HelloFresh and Zanya said, Eggy? Okay. Just just as the doorbell rang. So I said, say that bit again. Now she can't get it out without it sounding fake. Eggy? Is that better? Yeah, I do. <laughs> you know, that sort of... I don't Slave to 70s prog that... I don't know. I do you know what? I don't know what I know what I mean by it, but I can't articulate it. Mm. It it isn't. I suppose it is self indulgent in in a in a way, but it doesn't not in a kind of annoying sort of virtuoso way, which so many uh, modern neo prog bands do. It's part of why I don't like Transatlantic. 
because too often it feels like it's an excuse to show that, you know, oh, look at all the notes I can play really fast. Mm. <laughs> and, it, and now look, look, I've changed, so, I've changed key. <laughs> look how quickly I can change keys. So what you mean is it's it, um, just kind of trying to show off technical skill rather than express. And that, that's why I don't, I, I can't get into Transatlantic for that because it feels like a technical showcase rather than anything. Uh, and I struggle Emotional. to get emotion from it. Mm. Was this, the emotion does feel there that it's baked into the music. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, you know how we had hashtag release the release? Yeah. Maybe we need to have like hashtag open the iris or something. <laughs> that does not sound nice. That sounds really creepy. All right, can you think of something better? That sounds awful. Hashtag Iris due in the name of the law. It's got to be about hashtag releasing I, hashtag Iris. Iris Iris stew. No, it has to be about releasing <laughs> Iris on other streaming platforms. Hashtag get your Iris out. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. Right, that'll fine. do. Look, that's all I've got to say about it. It's um, yeah. Let's get it on the racket. Let's reissue it. it. Let's have it reissued. Reissue it's a, it's a Iris. Cracking instrumental album. So the next solo project is the first bona fide solo stroke side project from Steve Rothery. Uh, the first album by The Wishing Tree, Carnival of Souls, which came out in September 96. By this point, they probably were already working on this strange engine, which I think you can see the influence of this album on on this strange engine. There's a lot more acoustic guitar on TSE than there is on previous albums, even though it sort of flirted with it with songs like After Me and Easter and <laughs> and the like. It was a bit of a journey to get to the, the point of, of Rothers doing a, a side project. Apparently he wanted to do one with a female vocalist in, in 85 or was considering doing one around that time. With the same vocalist or no, was someone else? No, Hannah Stobart, which is basically what, yeah, they they were the core of the wishing tree, were brothers and Hannah Stobart. She apparently came up to him backstage at a gig uh, and gave him a demo of some uh, covers that she'd done. And that was, that was why he got together with her and started, because he liked her voice. When they had this break between albums, he realised now's the time to to kind of put this into into motion. But the the road to this had actually started in 1993 when they were recording Brave, where Miles Copeland, who's Chateau Marouat, where they recorded Brave, he apparently off, offered Rothery uh, a deal to do a solo album uh, and release it on Miles Copeland's own label. Oh, right. Which he didn't take at the time because he was too busy with Marillion stuff, mm. but he did get it did get the sort of the balls rolling in his head. And it was then, yeah, during that tour that it was Hannah Stobart who gave who came backstage and gave him the demo tape, uh, which contained on it apparently um, a Tori Amos track, "Me and a Gun," and a version oh, I love of that song. yeah, a version of the folk song. She moved through the fair, so he started um, putting together demos with her at, at his home studio. He's got a home studio. Well, I mean, technically, I've got a home studio. It's the it's sofa, the sofa. Where, I, where I live. The sofa that I live on. 
if only that wasn't true. Um, anyway, so uh, it was during the, the a couple of weeks early in 1996 that they put together um, the, the the tracks that was sort of you know as we know was was largely acoustic. Pete, because he needs to be part of everyone's <laughs> project, once again said, "Can I play?" Uh, and so he uh, he was on bass. A guy called Paul Craddock from a band called Enchant was on drums and keyboards, uh, and on backing vocals, Rother's very own wife, Joe. Oh right, yeah. Oh nice. I'm going to say it now. I prefer the second album. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's just get that out there. So the the lyrics were written by John Helmer. Um, as as we know, John Helmer would just unbidden fax lyrics through and the band would grab them and H would sort of go, yes, no, yes, no. So, But H would also change the lyrics. The yeah, lyrics. I don't think these, the, the, the vocal melodies were kind of, were put together by Hannah Stobart. So she she was responsible for the vocal melodies, which is why sort of the songs are co-credited to the two of them. Right. Whereas the music was written by Rothers. So she didn't write any of the lyrics per se, but she did do the melody, the vocal melody. Yes. With the exception of one song, which is co-credited to Steve Hogarth. What? Uh, it's a track oh. called Night Water. Night Water, you know that one? Give me water, sweet night water. Give me water or I'll die. That's <laughs> not how she sings it. It's how I sing it. Uh, you know that song? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they worked that up for season's end. No way. Yeah. So some of the vocal melodies on there are H's. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Um, uh, so... But unfortunately, H, it was H that turned it down because he wasn't a fan of the, the lyrics. He described them as too gothic. Mm-hmm. Midnight Snow was written during the Holidays in Eden sessions. And Evergreen, you know Evergreen, that one? Oh, yeah, I think so. You should do. You've been listening I've to been, this album. Yes. Um, was, dates back to Clutching at Straws. No way. Yeah. So how about that? Yeah. Wow. And it was uh, recorded and mixed, uh, produced by Rothers, and recorded and mixed with the help of Stuart Every and Mike Hunter, who, of course, would um, go on to have a long association with Marillion. So, what do you think of this album, Sanya? All right, I'm just going to come out and say it. In theory, I felt like I should have liked it. I came to the album expecting to like it. I was surprised... Well, by your reaction to it, put it that way. Um, but I found it really challenging to listen to, to the point where it was like, um, I mean, I don't know. And it could have been the lyrics. I, I don't know. But I tried to listen to it the first time. Didn't get very far before saying I'm not really in the mood for this. And thought, tried to listen to it a second time. Same thing happened. I think I'd got to like the second or third song. And then I thought to myself, it could be a grower, so I'll keep at it. And I just, I just can't. I love, I do love Tinsel Town, Thunder in Tinsel, Thunder in Tinsel Town. Sorry, I think that's an absolutely gorgeous song. But the rest of it, I, I just, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, <laughs> well, I'm laughing because, because uh... I don't know why though. It's like I should like it, but I don't, and I don't know if it's, I don't know if if it's because the lyrics weren't written for the singer so she was just kind of singing them technically like we were talking before with 
that oh no I don't want it to sound like I'm saying it's eggy or prog or whatever it, she, I thought she was technically skilled and it she sung the songs I find, technically yeah. well, but there was no... I find there's not a lot of emotion going on. There was no soul. Yeah. And I hate to say to that. Who, she's, a, yeah, she's a good I hate, vocalist. I hate to say it. She's got a great voice. She's a great vocalist. There, it just... I just couldn't. I yeah. couldn't. I got... Oh, sorry, everyone. I got bored really yeah. fast and started skipping songs. Mm. Well, I... Uh, yeah, for me, I think that's what it boils down to because I've... Similarly to you, there's two tracks I like. I like Starfish. I quite like that. Evergreen's all right. Um, Nightwater is like getting nails down a blackboard for me. Um, and then Thunder in Tinseltown, I genuinely like. I genuinely like Thunder in Tinseltown. Yeah. And I don't genuinely like any of the others. <laughs> wow. It's the most negative I've ever heard. Yeah, I'm, you I on feel this so bad because it's like, oh, it's a kind of about magicy things and fairies or well, I don't think it's about fairies I don't But that's how it about. sounds right it, I just it's, thought I should love it and I don't My issue with it I've got a few right mm. one it, it's that despite the fact I mean this is you know, you kind of go this is Steve Rothery he, know. he knows how to to get emotion out of a guitar I know and right And yet even that even he seems very sort of a, I get what he's trying to go for he wanted to do an acoustic album that's quite stripped back it's clearly influenced by All About Eve. It's a band, I don't know if you know them. Um, All About Eve, uh, very influenced by All About Eve. And there's clearly some Joni Mitchell influence in there. You know, we were listening to Joni Mitchell last night because we were trying to work out, well, why do we like Joni Mitchell? Look, likes and understand. Why do we love yeah. Joni Mitchell? Why does Joni Mitchell work and this album doesn't? And I think it is what you've, you've hit the nail on the head with. For me, I get why H rejected the lyrics. It's not yeah, so much, yeah, you know, yeah, they are, they're the kind of lyrics that, that you know, the, down the double helix stairway and singing about bloody fairs and stuff. It's, 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 it's factual. It's like you might as well just read a phone book or something. Well, it's not factual. They're kind of sixth form poetry-esque. They're the kind of lyrics that people... Oh, yeah, sorry, it's not factual It's not factual. All. Yeah, they're not. It's fictional. <laughs> but, uh, it, but, it's I mean, the it's kind not of, emotional. Yeah, it's not emotional. It's the kind of lyrics that people think Marillion songs have. Mm. When they don't, you know, no, they write don't. songs about emotion. And yeah, there might be emotional themes in there. I struggled to identify them. They just seem so remote to me. And that, I think, is my issue with the album as a whole. Because consequently, on top of that, Hannah Stobart, again, very good technical vocalist. But there's a remoteness to her voice because it, 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 it's sort of quite one note. Do you know that what is, I mean? I think that's There's the word. not a lot of texture. I think that's it. You've hit the nail of the, on the head with the word remote. It's a remote Lyrically, story. it felt remote. It should have been the warmest album of the three that we're talking mm. about here. And instead, it's the chilliest. Because can I also just throw in, let's bring everything back to Grendel once again. Mm-hmm. Grendel's a fantasy-themed song. And yet, I feel it has soul. Mm. It's not just about a monster. No. It has... Musically, it has texture, as you've just said. It's got feeling. It evokes feeling in you. Mm. It tells a story. Whereas I didn't feel any of these songs from what I heard. They didn't capture me. But how do you how how do you kind of put emotion into lyrics? Like yeah, I know exactly. That's why I'm not blaming the singer. 
Let me just call. I'm up not some blaming of the, the singer because it was what she had to Let, work with. Yeah. Just before we sat down to record, while I was having lunch, I started watching a Joni Mitchell documentary, and someone said how Joni Mitchell had this talent to distill emotion into a song. Mm. But she's singing there. songs that she believes in because they're lyrics that she yeah. can relate to. Yeah. Whereas you I know, mean, it's phenomenal as well because it's like. I mean, I, I said this in our little Patreon Extra podcast, but I'll say it again here. Um, she's not a flamboyant character, and yet she's able to, through her voice and her music and her lyrics, she can, like, affect you at, at, at the deepest level. Yes, we're not really here to talk about Joni Mitchell. No, but, I know we're not. I know you want I know to, we're not, but what I'm mind. saying is I didn't get that with... <laughs> <laughs> you mean you didn't get that with the uh, with, with the lyrics, down the sluices of oblivion, drain a reservoir of thirst, shooting stars like stock car headlights, flash and flicker, flare and burst, and the children of the Hydra, born of beetle blood and dung, dance like dervishes in sulphur on the ashes of my tongue. <laughs> I mean, Jesus! Yeah. You could, uh, yeah. Could you imagine H? He has sung that. Can you imagine what that must have been H like? H has sung that. Well, that's the that's the song that he that they tried to work up with him. Yeah, I can't see H. Yeah, I can see why that. he rejected it. I can see that. I can see why as well. Mm. Respect to anyone who loves that. That's you know everyone is allowed to like what they like. I'm not saying that we're right or I'm right. No, there are it's our opinion, but for me I'm just saying, yeah. For me, I, like. I think you 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 know when confronted with those sort of lyrics, yeah, I don't blame Hannah Stobart for not knowing what to make of them mm. because I don't know where the where the emotion is in words like that. You know, what are they what's that about? This is going to sound really mean and I don't mean this is her fault because I think she's she's laden here with lyrics which kind of force a certain sort of delivery. Mm. Um but it almost sounds like when you listen to it that she's doing an impression of emotion. She's impersonating emotional singing. So it's sort of very mm. breathy. You and, can't blame her. And you can't blame her with lyrics like that. It's very that it's that sort of breathy kind of folk female folk singer 101 type delivery that frankly in this this is almost damning with faint praise. They sound like a Meridian support band. But you say the second album... I prefer the second album. I, I, it, it's not vastly different to this one. It's a little bit less acoustic, but only a little. I think as well, I I expected a, a rather side project to sound like, frankly, Ghost of Pripyat, which was his bona fide solo album. Mm. I expected something that had... That lovely atmospheric guitar, that slide guitar thing that he does, the 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 builds atmosphere. A song like Winter Trees, you know, Winter Trees, the little instrumental bit that was one of the B sides and one of the singles of um, yes, that without any lyrics, without any vocals, manages for me yeah. to have more emotion in it than anything. I on agree. Carnival of Souls. I agree. And consequently, the same thing can be said for Ghost of Pripyat, which I think is a oh, gorgeous Ghost album. Ghost of Pripyat is exceptional. And likewise, the stuff that, that the one track that he's sort of teased from his next Sarah album, that's beautiful. It's a really gorgeous piece of music. And I think that's, for me, what I want from a Rother's so solo project is Rother's 
being given the space, you know, I'm not telling him what to do because clearly this is what he wanted to do. He's clearly a Joni Mitchell fan, clearly liked All About Eve, uh, wanted to do an acoustic album with a female singer. Great, you did that. But <sighs> other people do it better. There, I've said it, you know, and, and but what no one does better than, than Steve Rothery is be Steve Rothery. Mm. And this album for me isn't him at his absolute best, but at the same time, I'm glad he did it because it fed into some of the my favourite moments on This Strange Engine. Saying all this, Carnival of Souls is not a bad album. No. It's not bad. It, no, it's just... Technically, it's, it's not bad. Technically, it's not bad. There's nothing on there that... It, it's just washes over me. Yeah. Not in a good way. So, on to the final of the side project era. It was February 1997's Ice Cream Genius by the man called Steve Hogarth. In some respects, this is... It's the most interesting, I think, of the three. For a lot of reasons. One, because it was clearly an attempt by H to establish his, his identity as a musician and performer where he obviously didn't feel he could do that in Meridian. This was an era when he still didn't feel he had ownership over the band or or a right to call Meridian his band. Uh, on top of that, there's some really interesting people that he collaborated with, which some of whom he'd continued to collaborate with in years to come. And then uh, on top of that, you've also got his lyrics... You know, there's not a third party here. And for the first time, you know, it, it's it's Steve Hogarth writing all the lyrics on an album and not sharing that responsibility with John Helmer. So it, it's a pure expression of what he had going on for himself. Also, there's a ton of information out there about it. In fact, way more than I think there has been for any Meridian album. Really? Yeah, he talked a lot about it in a lot of interviews. And it's a shame because this, I think, of these three albums, you can probably say Iris is the most forgotten. It's not even available well, because, anymore. Yeah, where can you listen to it? And then this really, I don't think, I, I'm sure the Meridian fans who don't even know it exists. Are you serious? I didn't know it existed. I found it by accident when in a rec- you... record shop in Essex. When When was that? Well, the year after it came out. Oh, okay. all right. So not years later. No, I found. I was like, "What the hell is this?" So I, I knew Although, nothing. Although to be fair, that was before the days of the internet. So, well, I had the internet, but obviously, I don't know. It, it sort of just kind of slipped out without a trace. Oh, that's such. Uh, yeah, that that is a shame. Yeah, uh, and it is a shame because it's actually really, really bloody good. It's really good, and there's tracks on there. Uh, I mean, we'll get into talking about the actual individual album in a bit, or the individual songs and the album as a whole and what we think of it in a bit, but um, there's tracks on there that at least one of them, I think, should have been a Marillion song. There's two that I could see working as Marillion songs. And it is something that I've talked about in the past on the podcast, is 
about how I want to see Meridian experiment more. Mm. He's doing that here. Mm. He's pushing his sound. Um, yes, and in fact, I I can't remember now which one I wrote. I know which one we both agree we've already talked about we think would make a great Marillion song. Yeah. Um, in fact, while I was listening to it, I thought it was a Marillion song and then remembered I was listening to H's uh, solo work. There was another one that I thought this would make a good Marillion song and then it went completely mm. different. And I thought to myself, oh, I don't think Marillion would probably want to do that. Yeah. But it works and I really love the song. Well, I've got, I mean, I've got a ton of quotes from him about it and about Marillion and working within what is and isn't marillion and why he oh, felt right. the need to do this. But before we get there, so this album was, they'd, they'd finished their Afraid of Sunlight tour dates in Poland and he came back and started writing them. So he wrote it kind of between December 95 and May 96. And he got on board a producer called Craig Leon who had launched the careers of people such as the Ramones and Talking Head and Blondie. So he was well-connected, this guy. And H, because he wanted it to be an album that did not sound like Marillion. I don't think he was always always successful in that. <laughs> as we say, there's one song that mm. that really does. He, um, he, he managed to get on board Clem Burke, who was the drummer for Blondie, bassist Chucho Machan, Dave Gregory from XTC, and Richard Barbieri, who had previously been in a band called Japan, which I know some people listening to this will have heard of. But then at that point, he was also part of Porcupine Tree. All right. It, it's, Richard Barbieri, is that who H did his second solo album with? Well, yeah, technically that's not a solo album because he did it oh, with Richard course. Barbieri. So, <laughs> yeah. What are we calling them Yeah, side they projects? stayed mates. And, yeah. Um, most of this band then also went on to tour this album with him. Um, oh, right. Great, great tour and great live album. You saw him live? Tour. Yeah, great. I saw him, well, I've seen the H Natural a lot, but I saw him with the band twice. Oh, brilliant. Um, they were great shows, very different. He also got on board um, a guy called Aziz Abraham, who also did a great solo album at one point, who had been touring guitarist with the Stone Roses. Wow. Um, so in terms of the people in the band. He had a really credible lineup of musicians and he did ask Stephen Wilson to produce it, but Stephen Wilson was producing and writing with Fish at the time and didn't feel it would be... Okay, awkward. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Enough said. <laughs> I understand enough why said. he turned that one down. But can I just say, I think the quality of musicianship is reflected in the sound. Yeah, yeah. So he did, he wrote the songs himself, but he did let people experiment in the studio. He tried to do a bit of a Beach Boys, Brian Wilson thing. They had a dressing up box in the studio oh, right. and they would like kind of put on different clothes between takes and and stuff. So he was in, he was trying very obviously to, to get away from Marillion and have a bit of fun and mm. and sort of say who he was because he was so overshadowed still in that band. And one of the things I really found interesting was, was I was reading that he uh, he didn't want anywhere associated with the album the name Marillion. Whereas Rothers had, had very much promoted The Wishing Tree as, you know, the new solo project by the guitarist from Marillion. H said he didn't want it to be an album from the singer of Marillion. He wanted it to stand on its own two feet as its own thing. 
again, all the sadder that it then just disappeared without a, I know. Without a trace. I mean, why do you think that is? Do you think there wasn't enough promotion for it? Or Well, it was released It was released by Castle, who Marillion had signed to. And Castle weren't even promoting Marillion. So why the hell would they even bother mm, Maybe it was promoting... just lack of funds or something. I just think lack of interest, really. Or lack of enthusiasm. It's such... I mean, again, you're going to use the word shame. It's such a shame because... Listening to it, I thought, if I'd heard that back in 97, I would have bought that album and really loved it. Mm. It's exactly what I would have listened to at the time. And I would, I'm happily listening to it now. Yeah, it's not a pop album. So, I mean, I imagine it was a difficult sell. He wasn't young. You know, in fact, there's a song on there about that. So, his attempt, you know, and he wasn't signed with a huge label. Castle weren't a big, mm. massive sort of EMI or someone like that. They were a smaller independent label launching a new artist is a huge undertaking and he wasn't a new artist he wasn't a young artist and he was for all his attempts to get away from the new singer in Marillion label that's how he was seen and that's who he was you know he was still attached to that mothership whether he liked it or not he said he, he wanted the audience to discover the album without prejudices and not to bring any Marillion baggage to it it was obviously something that weighed on him Mm. that fact that he'd stepped into those big shoes that belonged to Fish, even though, you know, at that point he'd done as many albums with Marillion as, as Fish had, although obviously they'd not been as big and, you know, he'd been the, the singer at the helm when they got dropped by EMI. So I don't know if he felt a, a, a degree or a weight of responsibility for that. Yeah, I wonder if part of it could have been as well he wanted to know that he could create good music that is appreciated for itself rather than being part of a band that already existed before he joined it. Yeah, well, he says he said in an interview, he said, Marillion is not my band, but a band I have joined, not formed. Mm. Um, he says, even if today I'm certainly the one who has invested the most in the band. That's an interesting quote. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah and sorry I mean sorry to interrupt I keep coming back to the his recent quote um, where we heard him say that he stepped back from having input with the music mm. in like the current album that they're working on and I'm wondering whether those feelings of Marillion not being his band that he formed have kind of risen to the surface again, maybe. I don't get... I No, I don't get that feeling. I think certainly since he worked with Dave Megan on Marbles, mm. which Dave Megan pushed him to claim ownership of the band, I think even though Fish does still continue to cast a long shadow and, and in the wider public, people are still, oh, they were better with Fish, or, oh, is Fish not in the, the band anymore? Even though that still persists in... Yeah, a general audience. I think he knows now that Meridian are as much his as right. it is the others. I think he's he. I just get the feeling that his contribution that he feels he's better served providing the lyrics and the voice and, the story. and, and coming in at points to offer guidance or musical ideas rather mm. than you know that long endless jamming slog. Although he's clearly going into the studio most days when the others are there, but I don't know what's going on there. But he said, um, he said uh, again, apologies for this because this interview has been Google translated into English. Um, 
he said what you know he was asked what was he expecting from the album and he said if the album becomes successful my life will become a dreadful chaos because i will have to make difficult decisions and also i will have to give much 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 energy in return i know that the chaos will settle down around me speaking of my career and of my relations with Meridian and my family it will be chaos so I'm starting to think that success will be the worst thing to happen if the album is successful but on the other hand I suppose that being recognised that my real value for my artistry is close to my heart it's my big ambition now and forever and for the moment I haven't lived this special moment mm. so he wanted to be seen for him yes because by the time he joined the band even though at this point you know early 97 they'd shared a lot of fans, which he must have been aware of. He must have also been aware that a, a lot or the vast majority of remaining fans had st- had joined in the 80s, weren't there because of him. Yeah, that's, and that's exactly habit. what I meant yeah. with my previous point, um, whether he, about him wanting success in his own right mm. for his own Purely his creation. I think that's what people was going coming on. to him just for him, not for him. Well, not because they were already there with the rest of the band and just accepting him as the new guy. And it's understandable. It's a very human thing to want because, and it's something that we've talked about a lot. Is is that pressure that he must have been under, and and the complicated feelings that that in the, in this era it must have brought up. Even though he'd had that huge, um, what's the word, vote of confidence in that the band wanted him to be singer, and he and I'd asked him, you know, hadn't asked him to leave by this point, and they'd produced some well-received albums. Critically, in certain circles, they'd also divided fans because you know, as we've said, those first four EMI albums with H are all over the place in terms of style. Mm. There's no consistent through line really they, they, you they can were sort still of say, finding their feet they were with him yeah yeah whereas I think yes alright Misplaced Child and Chat yeah was was, a, was different to Script for Jester's Tear and Clutching at Straws was very different to Script for Jester's Tear yet there was sort of a consistency of sound there where mm. something happened and then you can't blame it on H because there's four other Marillion members who are you know writing the music I think they were all exploring what they should be and shouldn't be without Fish for four albums. And it continued for the rest of the 90s, really. In fact, to a degree for the rest of their career. But I think it's also, it's worth us digging into the album and looking at some of the, the songs because there are there are themes there, again, once again, that he keeps returning to that are very much on um, on Ice Cream Genius. The title of which, by the way, do you know where the title comes no, from? No, I was going to ask you. Because apparently the producer, when he liked something, would, would shout, I scream genius! Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it became oh. I scream genius. So they, did the, they recorded the album in prime at the Racket Club, mm-hmm. which of course, because it was cheap. They, they did the vocals at a place called Soul Mill in Cookham, which were owned by Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, or had been owned by Jimmy Page, but was recently bought by Chris Rea. And then they mixed it at Van Morrison's place called The Wood Hall in Somerset. So he described it as, it's an album that was probably a long time coming. Some of the songs have been gradually coming together over a period of years. 
There were experimental things I wanted to try and things that were a bit quirky and personal. I finally found a gap in Meridian's schedule and took about six months to make this. The whole thing was really an experiment and a collaboration between myself and the last musicians on earth he'd expect me to work with. I put together a band that was comprised of heroes of mine, but perhaps not the heroes that one would expect. In many ways, the project was about the unexpected. So he has said that he he didn't want the album to flow. He wanted each song to sound sort of different, mm. a collection of different songs. Now, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think... With two exceptions, the album or the songs do fit together. I th- yeah. I think there I think were two outliers <laughs> on there, which we'll come to in classic Marillion style. Well, they are, of course, the rockier songs, but they feel so tonally different to the rest of the album. I just kind of go, okay. So he also said, he said, with Marillion, we play more polarised music and I can't use all my ideas there anymore. He said, we work to a certain pattern in which each band member has his say in choosing the songs. It can happen that one of my suggestions is rejected because it doesn't fit a certain concept or sound. Until now, those ideas stayed on the shelf and I'm gratefully using this breather to put some things on the album. So he he clearly felt, to a point, creatively frustrated. Mm. And this was another, you know, an addition to make, wanting to make a statement about who he was and himself artistically away from Marillion he just had ideas that he thought had worth that that he couldn't get away in the main band it's clear we like it you love it though don't you i really enjoyed listening to it um i think it's a great album i'm um i think it's a crime that it wasn't more successful because well i get why it wasn't because marillion weren't at the time so mm. however you look at it why you know if you're one of those fans that have kind of gone listen to Holiday's Need and gone sod this or one of those fans that have listened to Brave and gone sod this <laughs> why would you then buy a Steve Hogarth solo album I get, I get I get that and then on top of that he didn't even have the uh, the name Marillion because he wasn't promoting it as yeah. the, the song from the, the new Marillion singer which was you know okay, I, pre- so, I appreciate his reasons for doing that but also it probably didn't help was it not even promoted to Marillion fans I, I don't know how, but I missed it. Mm, I wonder if that was like purposeful, mm. purposefully not promoted to Marillion. Don't know. Band. I missed it. I didn't know it existed until the following year. Mm. I absolutely love it. I think it's a great album. Should we go through it track by track? Yeah, let's do that. So The Evening Shadows. Mm-hmm. Love it. Um, love the mellow tune. I love how... H is getting to properly shine with his lyrics and his voice um, and that the music fully supports his lyrics, it feels like. So it's like he's not competing. Not that I'm saying he does compete with the other musicians in Marillion songs. I just mean that this is his place. It's just, Mm. it can be all about him. Yeah, and what's lovely about this song is how sparse it is. Mm. There's just him and kind of the yeah. keyboard. It's yeah. so it's a precursor to like his H natural shows, really. It's so I can see that. It's such an empty song, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It works. Yeah. It has the space the notes have the space to breathe and mm. the voice has the space to breathe. Yeah, and he didn't have to go, Oh, okay, now we need a guitar solo in this bit or a keyboard solo. Yeah. This because is everyone yeah. needs to have this their time in the spotlight i sometimes worry wonder whether meridian worry about the audience getting bored <laughs> when listening oh, really? to their songs really i do sometimes yeah huh. i don't know certainly live yeah you know, I, I think meridian when writing 
I, I do sometimes think that they worry too much about the live performances. Instead of just creating a piece of art, I think... You know, so you if to be a fly on the wall, I don't know. But I, I bet you they have conversations like, how's this going to play live? Yeah, I was just about to, yeah. to ask that. Do you think they write their music with the with the intention for it to be played live. I think there is a degree of that, which is understandable because, you know, damn it, they have a, you know, they, they earn a living really now through their live shows. So it's fair. It's fair, but by the same token, it could hold them back, that approach. And I'm not saying that is what they do. It's a sense I get. Mm. Whereas this album even though he has played it live and it's gorgeous and beautiful and he can hold the audience in the palm of his hand when he plays some of these songs and you can hear a pin drop. This album, I don't think, has been written to be played live. Mm. But but yeah, but then it's interesting that you say it doesn't matter because when he does play it live, it's still exactly yeah Yeah, yeah. I think I wish Meridian would have the the bravery to to, to do more stuff like that. And you know what? I have been to a couple of H Natural gigs, just him on a keyboard... And he is captivating. Yeah. With a stage that stripped back. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, that's a food for thought. Food for thought. Yeah, I thought um, it was another thing I found curious was that um, the song seemed to be returning to one of his favourite themes. Is it ever? (laughs) (laughs) So we've got. There's an animal inside me. (laughs) I know, he loves that. The duality of age. I mean, even, even. Fast forwarding to sounds that can't be made uh-huh. with like sky above the rain. This the animal's still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the silverback. Yeah, um, talking about having different slash contrasting parts of his personality, uh, like being two different people rolled into one. Uh, yeah, so it's like okay, still working through these themes which have come up in previous Marillion albums. Um, another thing I found interesting was. Having knowing that this album came before this strange engine, and I've listened to this strange engine by this point, still, we're not going to talk about it yet. But um, from what I've gathered from it so far, the difference I've heard is so. Oh, am I using too many words now? Um, <laughs> What's your Ice name, Cream fish? Genius, <laughs> or this song particular. <laughs> <laughs> So Evening Shadows is feels like an intensely personal song. Well, it's interesting you say that because his description of it is slightly not what I expect. Or oh. his explanation of it. Do you oh. want me to just tell you what he says? Yeah, well, hang on. Let me just finish my sentence. So I was going to say, in that sense, it feels like it is following closely in the vein of Afraid of Sunlight. But I didn't get the sense that this strange engine, much of it was that intensely personal on mm. an emotional level, um, barring a couple of songs. So, yes. so okay, I'm probably wrong now if you're going to no, tell no, no, me what but, this song is really Well, about. no, we'll talk about this strange engine. We'll talk about this strange engine separately. Yeah, but I know what you mean. I do know what you mean right. when it comes yeah. to that album. But, so okay. I, I, found that, I found that really interesting that it seemed, at least to me, that this song was still in that um, emotional raw space that Afraid of Sunlight was. Mm. And now you can cut me down and say, no, actually... No, you're not wrong, but here's what he says. It could also be that H wasn't ready at this point to admit how much of it was personal. Oh, that's true. So he said, 
because this is all from his website. This is it was like as like a Q and A on Ice Cream Genius on his website. So he says, "I'm with Evening Shadows. I'm talking about a second personality everyone has that can pop up under certain circumstances. I think we all have a private self that we keep secret to some extent from our families and friends. A lot of the HL explores the inner workings of the psyche, mine and certain other people's. I suppose most of the songs would fit this description, right? So, so far, so H. Mm-hmm. Okay, his obsession with." The fact that he's two people in one. Yeah. Bad guy, good guy. That's <laughs> how I sort of see it. Yin you know, yang. The guy. Yin yang man. The good guy and the party animal, uh, destructive, you know, tram in Amsterdam guy. So um, he says, a friend of my wife one day was told by her husband that he had, in H's words, effed all her girlfriends. Oh, God. He even gave her a list with all their names. Obviously, that woman was completely stupefied and it ended in divorce. I didn't understand what made that man do this. First of all, that he had done it, but especially his desire to inform his wife about it in such a coarse way, inflicting so much extra pain by making a list. As if that man had been leading a double life where the animal inside him got the upper hand. Um, Now, he then goes on to say, all performers have an alter ego that they send on stage. Even if you're not born with it, you notice that a second me emanates during tours because you can never be the same person on stage as in your private life because the person that gets on stage leads a very unnatural life, observed and perhaps adored by a few thousand people who all want to hear what he has to say, want to see what he wears and what he does. That can't be the same person as the one at the breakfast table in the morning. All my lyrics, some of the passages are clearly autobiographical confessions and all my lyrics have at least two or three reading levels. One literal sense and one transcendental sense. Even sometimes one alternate sense. These different interpretations are all relevant regarding the song's theme. According to myself, the best lines are those that you can understand in several ways. That's why I'm in the habit of lurking behind one of these hidden senses. When hearing a song, you ask, who are you talking about? But you must consider it's part of me and part of the other person. I'm glad that you read that because it's the lyric in... The Evening Shadows that says the animal inside of him makes him less boring. Yes. Now, after you've read this quote, I'm like, oh, maybe it's not only about him. It's something that he sees reflected in other performers I, as well. No, I, my take is, and I might be wrong, I don't want to slander anyone, I think it is about him. You know, I guess you don't recognise something in another person unless you have a bit of it in yourself. I think, and even if, I, I always think as well when H talks about this subject, there is a bit of, there but for the grace of god go i i think he's mm. been at least tempted down that path enough times yeah so to, we're still to kind, kind of, of be af- scared of it he's scared we're of it. still in the afraid of sunlight themes then yeah quite strongly yeah. still working through all of those themes and issues yeah and he will continue to going forwards mm. um i'm wondering if there is a part of him that does feel uh, insecurity is the wrong word but a kind of I guess the word is insecurity about having to perform and having to be mm. interesting. I just think it's about having that that as part of your personality or a different part of your personality that in the right circumstances it can come out and where you forget about your responsibilities and, and doing the right thing and you're feeding the animal. Feeding animal because it makes you less boring? I I don't... I think you're reading too much into intentions behind it. I don't think 
the way H writes about it, mm. I don't think the animal is something that he necessarily has control over. The way you seem to be saying it is something that he goes, right, time to turn on the animal. I think it's just there. And I think he's scared of it because he knows it can come out. Mm. That's my take. That's always okay. been my take yeah, when he talks about saying, this subject. I'm not saying these as statements. I'm asking them as questions. Mm. Do, does that make sense? Like, I'm not saying this is what I think. Well, this, I'm not saying this is what I think he's doing or saying. Mm. I'm wondering, is there a part of him that feels that pressure to perform and be interesting? Yes, I think there is. Um, I think there is. Because imagine you're not in the mood for performing. He describes, okay, I think you're focusing too much on the performing side. I right. don't think it's a necessarily a song about the animal is the performer. I don't think it's that. It says, in the lyrics, he says that he's voracious and insatiable. He's self-destructive and wild. I think the animal is H's self-destructive side. Mm. That's what it is. Yes, it makes you less boring in the same way that someone like Hunter S. Thompson was less boring. He was also a drug addict. Not, I'm saying H is. Mm. He might tap into that on stage, but I think it's more about how he behaves, how he behaves on tour off stage. Right. I think that's what it's about. So, you know, I sometimes think about the animal. Sometimes I'm proud, sometimes ashamed. I know he drove me from my hometown. That's a very personal line. Mm. Made me feel like I'm not the same. I know he starts me being boring. I think so anyway. I don't know if I control him. So, uh, but I must try to keep him chained. He doesn't think about the future. He lives completely in the now. And then he says, I sometimes see the other animals controlling other people's lives, doing things they thought they'd never do and not really knowing why. So we must all beg for forgiveness, say sorry and explain, until the evening shadows stretch themselves and here we go again. Mm. I think that's what it is. It's mm. it, it, it's, a, it's a cautionary tale and he, he is telling himself, uh, uh, you know, keep it under control, mate. I if think. you can. If you can, yeah. But it's powerful, this thing. Yeah. As I say, you Primal. know, he, he describes it as a silverback gorilla in another song years later. On that note, should we move on? Yes, let's move on. To really like. Yeah. Lovely little song. I really like, really like. Yay. <laughs> I haven't really written anything about it, except that it sounds really different to Marillion. Like yeah. traditional Marillion. Yeah, it's got a lot of, sort of nice sort of programmed kind of dance beat mm. almost. Yeah, it's really it. upbeat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I believe um, H describes it as, as some white Afro funk. I don't know if that's okay. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, I haven't got a lot to say about it. It's just a nice little yeah, song. Yeah, nice song. Um, and I think the lyrics almost speak for themselves. You know, it, it's, it's, I like you, but what do you really like? Which I suppose does actually tie back into the theme of Evening Shadows because perhaps because he sees that animal inside himself, he doesn't potentially yes. trust that other people don't. He's like, you know, what's your animal really yeah, like? Yeah. Good point. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's about falling in love with someone or think, or being attracted to someone, but then saying, if I knew what you were really, you were really like, would I burn the same? Yeah. You know, so would you still feel that same way? Um, yeah. 
Would I think about you every second just the same or would I write it off as something of a terrible mistake? It's just that, I suppose, paranoia stroke insecurity when you're first in a relationship and can I trust the other person as yeah. much as anything. Simple little song, but very lovely. Mm, but that's uh, deep now that you talk about it. It's got a groove to it as well. It does. Yeah. So moving on was the one single from the album. Oh, this was a single? Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure I've played you the video which I think wouldn't oh. wouldn't wash today because there's a little bit of cultural appropriation going on in there. I can't remember it. He's wearing a turban and dressed as a sort of guru at one point. I'd need to see it again. No, you, you really know. don't need to. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's lots of okay. age dressing up and it's a song well, what do you think it's about? I think it's fairly obvious what it's um, about. Well, first of all, I want to say, um, is the dinosaur connected to the dinosaur in <laughs> Cannibal Surf, babe? Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm joking. No. I thought you were going to say, has he got a dinosaur living in him now? <laughs> <laughs> it's crowded in there. It's old bloody zoo. <laughs> Gorillas, dinosaurs. <laughs> wow. Oh. Which would, like, put a whole other meaning on that line in Cannibal Surf, babe. Yeah. It's a rock song. It's a rock song. It's a pop song. Very retro. Pop rock song. Um, I'm liking... This is some the difference I'm hearing with traditional Marillion mm. sound is that um, really like and you dinosaur thing are very light and short and crisp. Mm. So kind of the opposite to Marillion's heavier, longer, denser yeah. um, tracks. I... I don't mind you dinosaur thing. It's just because I, I love the atmosphere on the tracks around this and until you fall. Mm. Uh, I wish it fitted a bit better with those. It jars for me on the album. And I don't, it's, it's fine. It's a pop rock song. It's fine, but it's not brilliant for me. Mm, I don't mind. I mean, yeah, I don't, it's not my favourite really song, sort of, but I don't mind It's it. really like sort it. of basic kind of, um, it's just fine. You know, mm. it just doesn't do anything particularly surprising or original for me. Really? And lyrically... I think, like, because of its retro sound, it was quite original. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Compared to the other songs on the album, I thought it, it really stood out. And I find the lyrics a bit cringe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's him reflecting on being washed up. At, oh, okay. At however yeah. old he was then, 38 or 37 or... You know, he wasn't old and yet considered himself an old rocker. Ah, see, I didn't take this song as a personal one. I thought it was about about an old school rock or pop star mm. who, like, the radio shows and others are judging and deciding. Like, they're deciding who's cool and who who's not and they think he's too old to be cool now. But I didn't actually think it was a personal... Yeah, yeah. Well, he said, yeah, I think it's... Well, look, I'll just read out his explanation from he the website. He couldn't have been old when this came out though surely come on we all at 38 or 39 we all feel like we're oh maybe it. in the music industry <laughs> well yeah true but also i think yeah most people kind of yeah i've been saying oh my god i'm so old since i was about 25 <laughs> um, yeah, as, as all 25 year olds seem to yeah. do now i i'm like i'm not that old yeah yeah as you get older <laughs> cut, you think you're cut to five minutes later dies of old age <laughs> Cancel and delete that <laughs> line. Just old age. <laughs> Cause of death. Old age. Uh, anyway, so he says the song has to do with being bored with trends, especially in England. 
Don't, for instance, all those... What's wrong with Scotland's age? Uh, <laughs> what about Wales? <laughs> you ingratiate yourself with those fish fans. Um, take, for instance, all those new and modern bands. Once you get started, you're already out of fashion. It's all hype. Actually, the song is also a little bit about myself. When you're in a band for 10 years, you feel like an old rocker. It's also a warning to all those young bands. Just listen to the lyrics. What do you know about being young? You're almost 21. Uh, so it's another... Because, it, again, that's another theme that he does return to is kind of being a bit cynical about the music industry well you can't blame him no you can't you cannot him. blame him for that it's but it is another favorite uh h topic mm. that we perhaps haven't addressed as much because it no, certainly starts we have it starts coming out more going forwards oh right maybe he couldn't I think it maybe it couldn't come up as strongly because before they were with emi yeah, and maybe. So maybe still with Castle, still can't really be as honest yeah. about the music industry as he'd like. And then going forward, maybe he was able to more easily. Yes. So this is, uh, I didn't even know this was out as a single again. I did, I had no clue that it was a single off the album until I, hmm. uh, till I again found it in a record shop. As you know, God, that was weird going around with record shops. Don't do that anymore. No. <laughs> yeah. So you want to move on to the next one, which is, uh, here we are, Death and Water Time. Oh, oh I was going to say ah, that. Happy to do it. I was going to say that. The Deep Water. Yes. First of all, I had to laugh straight away that even on a solo album, there had to be song about water. Um, and this was one of the songs that I could imagine as a Marillion song. Oh, that's interesting. Until it got to the second well, part. Well, until it goes all trancey. Yeah. But I really love that second part. Oh, oh my goodness, the drums and tambourines and bass. I tell you, when he it's did that just, live, Sanya, oh, when gorgeous. he did it live, they beefed it up and it went on and oh, on. I and it got that. really, really sort of hypnotic, kind of yeah. pulsing, kind of in and out. The live version of it was amazing. The one that's on Live Body, Live Spirit is really, really good. Oh, I can imagine that would have been uh, awesome. What is interesting, which I'll just jump ahead to, I was going to mention at the end, he was talking, after this came out, he was talking about a second solo album mm. and he said he wanted to do a trance album. What? Yeah, really? he said apparently he found a couple of sort of French producers that he wanted to work with who had a sort of, but a kind of a, a sort of ethnic stroke rhythmic kind of trance well, uh, style. I'll say it now. I think if any member of Marillion could do it successfully, it's H. Well, this shows it. I mean, yeah. this this song is, it, and this is why I, I suppose I didn't like you dinosaur thing partly lyrically and partly musically because it does feel sort of dated whereas whereas deep water it's got that absolutely gorgeous atmospheric first half that, mm. that you're right actually now you say it, it it could fit on brave or exactly you know be a cast off from out of this world or something and then it goes into this trance bit which does sound genuinely really modern because yeah. it's got it has got those sort of ethnic rhythms and flutes and things coming in and it sounds yeah, well, compare that to jumping ahead to this strange engine, Hope for the Future, which, you know, I know... <laughs> Wait, no, I don't want to talk about that yet. No, I know, but... Because we Marillion might, attempted we to might do... have different, differing opinions on it. Anyway, let's just say that H did it very well here, and it sounds bloody, he did. bloody yeah. great. Yeah, and I'm wondering, like, would Marillion ever consider incorporating the, that kind of sound what the sort of more electronic kind of dancey sound well i mean what is interesting is they did um this strange engine we'll get to this they they released a remix album this strange engine 
They uh, did? Yeah, by a couple of dance producers. <laughs> Is it po- available to listen light. to anywhere? We'll, I'll see if I can find you. I need copy. to listen to this. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about it. Oh, I, I want to have heard it by the time we talk it's about it. Good. That sounds great. It's pretty good. Some of it's shit, but some of it's really good. But yeah, and then they've experimented with things like they did uh, Memory of Water, you know, that track, which I would say um, is the one track on this Strange Engine that feels like it sort of has been influenced a bit by this solo album, you know, because it's just H uh, piano, basically. Or is, it, is there any piano or Memory of Water or is it purely just sort of strings? But anyway, it sounds like it could almost have come from this these sessions. And I think it was... Memory of Water is effectively an H solo song just on that album. But they did a version uh, which which was remixed called the Big Beat Mix, which they played live a few times, which turns it from like that that sort of slightly gothic-y, lay, you know, very minimalist sort of uh, stripped back song into a full-on sort of dance anthem. <laughs> I should play you it. <gasps> <laughs> If anyone wants to know what just happened, I just knocked a painting onto my head. (laughs) That terrified you, didn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. Making you jump. (laughs) The world's most professional podcast. That's us. So, yeah, they do. So, yeah. (laughs) Now the painting's fallen on me. You know, in the wall. I'll just leave it there for now. Um, yeah, so they've sort of experimented in places. There was Anarachnophobia. They did um, a competition for fans to remix tracks and they released the, the best of those on an album. Oh, cool. But in terms of themselves, they are, you know, they, they started with that album, Anarachnophobia, using drum machines and, well, they did it on Lady Nina, but they, they sort of did it in, I suppose you're gone. You know, you're gone. Yeah. That has, you know, programmed yeah. drums. I think I think what I'm thinking of isn't just using a drum machine per se. It's kind of, I don't know, having a, a it, it, different it, sound elements thrown yeah, in. Yeah, but... Which I know they did do in Brave in a different way. But you've got to think but of I the musicians he's working with. Yeah. Uh, you know, Richard Barbieri has done loads of sort of ambient albums and, you know, is a keyboard wizard and then... Chicho Machan was, you know, can bring a lot of different influences in there. So Marillion aren't like that, as mm. H said, when he joined the band. They were sort of almost painfully white. Oh, dear. Can I just say I love the lyrics? You are the deep water, you are the thin ice, you are the edge of the high cliff and the November fires, you are my church bells, which I love how he sings that in the song. Uh, and the silent early hours, you are the ghost I hear, echo in the heart light, half light, ecstasy and heart failure, trembling and pounding in the magic spell. It's it's a love song, but it's written in such a H way. And it it's what's great about this album, and what's sort of also sad about it in a way is that he didn't always express himself like that in the band. That he was still relying on John Helmer. Mm, at this yeah, point, yeah, up to this yeah. point, and and then you read lyrics like that, and they're just gorgeous, mm. and just shows that he was such a talented lyricist even back then. It's not saying he's grown into; he just didn't feel it was his place, mm. which is heartbreaking, really, that he felt so. I don't know, in fishy shadow, 
because I suppose people never let him forget it. Yeah. In interviews and and things. So I mean, he he has a uh, just an explanation about it on his website. He says um, it's a poem set to music. It's about my own death and my own love. The music is like a movie, very visual and ambient. But at the end, the water runs dry to a desert, and the music reflects this as the rolling of the ocean gives way to the Arabic rhythm. Let's move on to um, Cage. Cage. Wow. Cage, again, so different, so experimental. Um, and and I, I just thought good on H for doing things so differently musically. So different to Marillion. Um, it really, really reminded me of a song that I was obsessed with in 2014 called um, Significant Landscapes by a band called Carriages, which I know nothing about. I know. I know know this song, Significant Landscapes, and another one of their songs called Roots. Oh, And I I just listened and re-listened and re-listened to those two songs so many times. Um, Yeah, there's something about the the disjointed rhythm in the background that reminded me. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, wow, wow. Love it. Like, love it. Yeah, it's great. Again, back to the theme of animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I also, I kind of experienced this song as a part two to uh, Evening Shadows. Yeah. It felt kind of like they were connected. Well, maybe. yeah, yeah. Animals in the zoo, uh, all of that. But what? Well, I thought it was like a guy who was in trouble with his wife or he'd, he'd done something wrong and he's kind of been put into a... Time out is like the wrong word for it, but I can't think of another word at the moment. And it was, he was suffering, but he he also knew that it was right for him to be in that place because he hurt oh. her. Well, uh, interestingly, I, I didn't have that take on it. Mm. And I had a slightly, uh, I suppose, revelation based upon the most recent Corona Diaries. Okay. Uh, where H talks about the period before... Uh, saying it frankly, before they got rid of John Arneson and when they were with AMI, mm. which don't forget this when this came out, was post-AMI, shortly before they parted ways with John Arneson as manager. Um, he was talking about how he used to lay awake in bed at night wondering if the manager, their manager or the record company had done anything for them that day. Really? Um, and how... Oh, no, that's so sad. Yeah, and how most of the time, no, they hadn't. And if... They'd tell you everything was great, but you never get the full picture. Wow. So they really felt abandoned and, and that, unimportant to and them. that based upon, yeah, unimportant and abandoned and on their own. And so oh. consequently, that coupled with the explanation I've got from H here mm. suggests to me that that's what he means when nothing fell into the cage today. You know, the cage, be it, the little back brushes keep out the cold. The, the, it's, you know, he didn't receive oh, any I news see. from, so it's just, it's a song about waiting, I think. Waiting for stuff, other, yeah, other people to. Oh, I was, and I thought it was like waiting for, for forgiveness or to be able to be let back in. Well, it could with... be, because I've often thought that, funny enough, in the past with mm. this song. 
Um, but or, he says, you know, it could have a du- many meanings. I was going to say a double meaning, but it's H. It well, could have yeah. like fifty meanings. That's what he seems to say that his songs do. But and he they says, do. He says it defies description. It's about waiting for a letter or the phone to ring. You'll just have to hear it. People sometimes have those little cages on the back of the letterbox for their letters to fall into. I sometimes feel like I'm an animal in a zoo myself. Although when I say do not feed the animals, I'm talking about everyone except me. It's quite quirky and ponderous. Um, do not feed the animals. He's like, he wants to be fed. Yes. He wants to hear that, oh, we've got you a uh, uh, slot on top of the pops. Or, got you know. Another gig in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Yeah. Which is like, they love. That's what it seems to be about, yeah. I think. But coupled with that sort of great sort of groove and rhythm that, that's going on. Mm. I think it's, a, it's a, another cracking song. Such a good song. Such a great song. Yeah. Uh, another one. I would love to hear that live. Yeah. Absolutely love it. So, uh, but he's, I, I'm trying to think if you have, you might have at H Natural because he does, he oh, has really? played it. He's played, I wouldn't he, have recognised He plays loads of his Ice Cream Genius does stuff he? at H Natural shows, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I wouldn't have recognised it because yeah. I hadn't listened to Ice Cream Genius at that point. Deep Water he's done, he's done really like all of them. Oh, yeah. that's good to know. Good, I look forward to the next H Natural gig. Yeah, good. So Until You Fall, for me, another rocker. Mm-hmm. Lyrically... I think it's it's sort of part two of Hard as Love. I think it's dealing oh. with very similar territory. Tell me what you think of it first before I go into that. Um, I noticed it was a bit rockier. But you noticed that, did you? <laughs> what gave it away? Was it was it the the sound of the song being rocky? Yeah, I think, I think it might have been that. I think that might have been what yeah. gave it away. Um, okay. So then I've written, I respect it for what it is, (laughs) but I don't love it. And I feel bad for saying that I feel it's a little bit average and I'm cringing and feeling really awkward saying that out loud because I can hear, I can hear that they've all gone all, okay, I can't be serious if you're wearing a giant baseball hat in front of me, Paul. I can't look at you when you're wearing that and not laugh. So take take it off. Yeah, maybe. Thank you. <laughs> it's a little bit distracting <laughs> to have your husband in front of you with a massive giant red baseball hat. And when I say giant, I mean really it's giant. A big, it's a big hat, isn't it's it? It's a big foam hat that goes up about I don't know, 50 centimetres. It's very precise. <laughs> <laughs> trying to give a precise visual. Um, yeah, because I can hear that they went all out with like the trumpets and... Stuff like that, but it still feels average or sounds average to me. Apparently, he was going for a Julian Cope vibe. It's a Julian Cope song called World Shut Your Mouth, which I can now that I've read that he said that that was sort of partly the inspiration. I can really see that in the song. I don't feel it fits on the album. I don't mind it. I think I think I prefer it to dinosaur thing but it feels like these were the two songs that were outliers for me mm. was because partly because the other songs are so um keyboard based and sort mm. of very sort of about rhythms and and those two songs felt like rock rockers that that just kind of come out of nowhere and don't yeah. have that sort of slightly more electronic rhythmic uh ambient thing going on that the other songs do and so I wish they hadn't been on there and that he there's another song called um 
it was the the bone that was the B side of dinosaur thing. Oh, what's it called? The last thing. That's it. Oh, I'm not sure I listened to that. That would have fit. I don't love it as a song, but it would have fit. I it think, would have fit better. better. I mean, I don't mind having that those differences in sound. I quite like that. It wasn't. It wasn't so much that I didn't feel it fit on the album. It just didn't really. It didn't really do anything for me. Although I do think it would be fun to listen to live. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it'd be fine live, but uh, fine. Well, says. yeah, but again, I, I'm a big one for I think albums. Uh, speaking of someone who recently released an album, please go and buy it on Bandcamp. Um, speaking Bandcamp slash Mr Biffo. No, it's not. It's mrbiffo.bandcamp.com. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh. Okay. You can also listen to it on Spotify. It's called Eschatology and Apple Music. Anyway, um, I like an album to to feel like a cohesive whole. I like albums right. too. I like it you when like bands go, connection. this song doesn't fit with the flow of the album. Otherwise, what you get is you get the second disc of Happiness is the Road rather than an album that flows. Mm. Um, and I, I like albums to be, you know, maybe that's old-fashioned in this age of sort of streaming and everything else. Mm. It, I, I, I hear what you're saying and, and I get it because I, I feel similarly. I do prefer there to be a connecting thread on albums, but I don't feel that um, these two songs stand out that... I don't feel like they jar with the rest of the album that much. They're different, but to me, they still fit. Okay, good for you. <laughs> well, according to H, they don't, because he was deliberately trying to make an album of... Yeah, but not in the like. sense that... They're different. They are different, but I don't feel like they should have been left off in the way that, if we go back to Brave... I did think Brave would be improved without certain songs on it. Yeah. And when I listen to Brave by skipping those songs, it's a much more enjoyable listening experience. I didn't get that with these two songs, but you know, hey ho. Anyway, what it's about, uh, well, let me just read what, what H says. Um, he says, I have known physical pain in my life, but when you fall in love, you're up on level two in terms of pain, chaos, confusion, and of course, beauty. It's a potent cocktail of uppers and downers. Ain't that true? Ain't that the truth? So, you know, I think it's there in the same sort of area as hard as love. Don't you? Y- yes, but I prefer it to hard as love. Yes, so do I. <gasps> shocker yeah right so moving on better dreams okay so i've just contradicted myself um Mm -hmm. not contradicted but because i said there were two songs that i thought would work on marillion albums one of them being was it deep water the other one yet to come there's actually three i thought better dreams would fit on a marillion album do you want to know which marillion albums season's end and holidays in eden you thought it would fit on those better dreams i know i don't know why i've written that doesn't make sense to Um, me it is uh it is a set of lyrics that he he had apparently he he first wrote them in 1982 after he first went to la with uh, with the europeans that makes sense and he, he had tried to make them work including with marillion for all of the intervening years, um, he hung on to them. What do you mean, hang on to them? Uh, <laughs> you mean he'd placed them in a petri dish? Yes, he placed them in a petri dish. Petri. I always said petri. Peas drunk on trees, they grow on. They grow on. Didn't mean uh, they that kind of grow pee. on bushes. 
vines. So, uh, yeah, so as he describes it as a poem set to music. Mm. I don't, I can't see this fitting on either of the two albums you just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I said that, and then it's like, well, I don't, how, how I don't it love it, but Holidays I don't Eden? hate it. I mean, yeah, I would have rather it was on Holidays in Eden than The Steamer, but... Exactly. But I wouldn't exactly. necessarily have thought it would have fit. I don't know why I've said that, but I guess something about the sound made me think it would. Yeah, it's it's okay. I. It's not my favourite of the more experimental tracks. No. Yeah, I don't love it. It's I very slow. I don't hate it. It's okay. Um, what is it about? Just what I thought you said. Hollywood, someone chasing dreams in Hollywood um, and how that can sometimes make you so desperate that uh, it can lead people to take advantage of you or lie to you or lead you to lie to others and take advantage of others. And there's also like bits thrown in about like the class divide and maybe how those without money don't have as much. LA is famous um, for its uh, massive massive kind of... Shifts class in, divide. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and how wealth divide more than anything. Wealth divide is a better way of putting it. Yeah, and those without money don't have as much um, likelihood of success in as, Hollywood. Yeah. As well, I think, musically, it, this is the one that I thought, oh, I can see where Memory of Water came from because it's got that sort of string backing in there which of course memory of water on this strange engine does it's apparently it was a it was a tricky song to 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 nail but not for the reasons you might think what musically or lyrically just as a whole lyrically i think he's he had the lyrics for years right he refused to change any of the words or, or chop them up oh right um so he said uh it never really happened with meridian then i spent night after night with a little string machine on my own in the room just trying to get the the kind of music and chords those words belong to. One night about two in the morning with headphones on at home, I came up with what became Better Dreams, almost on the fly how all those chords move. It was almost complete in one very slow, uncertain, faltering take. I liked it so much it became a very difficult song to record because I wanted to use the same vocal. There was no timing on it, no sense of a beat or rhythm. Recording the rest of the song was very arduous and complicated because I refused point blank to re-record it. <laughs> I said to the producer, Craig Leon, this is it. I just want you to make it better and I'm not going to change it. So it was a tricky brief for him, a murder for the string players to try and pin those parts down because there was no tempo. It involved lots of takes to start at the beginning and to try and end up at the end of each section. So that's interesting, isn't it? Mm. So yeah, not my favourite, but it's it, it's because probably because it does meander so much and mm. it's so slow and difficult to kind of get a grasp on. But he has that he's played it live. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that takes us to the final track. Yes. Nothing to declare. Yes. And I am going to declare something here. This is the best song Marillion never recorded. I agree. This was the song while I was halfway through listening to it. I forgot that I was listening to an H solo album. Yeah. Or side project. Um, I thought I was listening to Marillion. Yeah. And Marillion, bunch of idiots, turned it down. Why? It was it was um, it was one of the songs that he came to with the band mm. when he joined, and it was in his bucket, and he played it to them, uh, and he said to them, 
I've got this song. It's about aeroplanes and about someone going away and not coming back. And he, I kept playing it to them. It would have been on the album if the rest of the band had seen the potential of it. But for whatever reason, they just couldn't see it. Wow. Apparently, it's Steve Rothery's favourite song on the album. Well, what mate. mate. Well, mate. <laughs> what a took surprise. You, it took you long enough to see its potential. And H said, well, I thought you could have had it, but you didn't want it. <laughs> It's I, pure Marillion. It's so Marillion y. The way it builds mm. and the way it's got that, those those sort of string stabs on in the keyboard, you mm. know, stabs. But, yeah. Uh, I, I, and the live version on um, Live Body, Live Spirit, which is where the outro, when it really builds, which is amazing on that live version with Aziz Abraham and Dave Gregory going all out. I could see Marillion doing that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it, it breaks my heart because it's a song that deserves a bigger audience. It does. And yeah. I think if this had been on a Meridian album, this would be one of those songs that was in most sets that mm-hmm. they played live. So you think they'd never play it? Going back to our bookmark. I I would love them to do a, or attempt, attempt uh, to, to do a side project song by each of the members yes. at the Marillion Weekend. Yeah, I'd love that. Yeah. There's a Marillion Weekend evening for you. I wouldn't, no, oh, oh, well, well, I don't want a whole evening. I don't, <laughs> I don't want a 30 minute transatlantic song at Marillion Why not? I w- they can do one of their shorter transatlantic songs or an Edison's Children's song. <laughs> oh, you backtracked quickly. No, no, I'm just putting some rules in place. <laughs> No, no songs over 10 minutes, please. So I would love them to do. Here's what I'd love. Okay, go on. I mean, we can talk a bit more about... No, let's talk about Nothing to Declare and I'll tell you All what right, I want. let's talk about Nothing to Declare. So, uh, yeah, so it came from, he said... Um, he says Nothing to Declare is all over the place in style. I think it's really consistent, but whatever. Um, he said, Sue and I, this was his first wife, Sue, used to live near Heathrow and I used to watch the 747s climbing over my house and I wondered where they were going. I often thought it must be somewhere warmer and more exciting than rainy old England. So that's why he wrote the the lyrics back in 1988. Apparently it was originally just a piano and vocals idea. Um, and he he worked it all out though uh, in a bed in Washington. So I guess on some oh, wow. tour with a pocket sequencer. Um, I don't even know what that is. Well, you know, sequencer, sort of beat and Ooh. drum machine type backing. Um... So, yeah, he says, I think airports are romantic and tragic places, and the song came out of all that. Um, And, yeah, this idea of wanting to escape drab and boring England. Um, At the time, apparently, he said, it got to the point where I've been working on this for so long, I have actually no idea whether it's any good or not. Um, I've done so much work on it that it's become important, even though it is not very good. Well, that's what he thinks. Maybe I've just got to that point. So you have all the paranoia going in your head and I had that with nothing to declare when I was arranging it. I kept thinking, is it any good or is it just something I want to do? Which is a shame because it is really, really, really good song. Yeah, Uh, it is. It's definitely. And it's, I'll just say, I can relate to loving airports. I love going to the airport. I always had. I always have. Just for that sense of excitement and adventure and possibility. And I've always had... 
jealousy when people are going to airports to go somewhere. I get jealous. Do you know what, that? That they're going somewhere or that they're yeah, going to the and airport? Yeah, I'm not. And I'm no, I'm just jealous here. that they're going to the airport. I don't care if they're oh, going Oh, airport's anywhere. also an exciting places, even yeah. just to hang out in. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't get jealous. I get excited for people when they get to go somewhere. I, I don't. Just pure jealousy. <laughs> really? You ra- rage. <laughs> <laughs> Spite. I get no. spiteful when people say they're going away to, on a plane. Do you? <laughs> I get nasty. <laughs> Well, I'll make sure never to tell you because we're going on a plane. Well, well I, 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 I wanted to know a good reason why you were going on a plane without me. <laughs> Can I mention another thing? I heard quite a bit of um, Sting influence again in this song. I know I've said that yeah. before on this podcast with H, with regards to And H. I think you're right. And I think it's something that doesn't get mentioned enough in terms of particularly H's, what he brings to the band. Mm. And I think we'll it hear works. It. It's great. I love it. I we'll, love we'll Sting hear it and again I love on, H. Yeah. Bringing in Sting influence. We'll hear it again on this strange engine. I think when uh, mm. we get to it, I think there is some Stingness going on in one track mm. in particular. But yeah, so going back to in short, love nothing to declare. Yes, me too. Uh, I would love Marillion to do yes a half an hour of doing a solo song. From each of the bands. You've said half an hour, so no song can be over half an hour. Exactly. That's all you need. Although they could do all of Amelia by Mark Kelly if they want to, which is 15 minutes. That that does not leave a lot of time for everyone else. That's fine. What would you get Rothers to do? Pripyat? uh, Ghost of Pripyat or um, The Wishing Tree? They could do Thunder in Tinseltown. Yeah. I couldn't imagine H singing it, but they could do it. Uh, and then they could do oh, uh, what's that Time Machine song by Edison's Children that I like? They could do that, and then uh, then they could do nothing to declare, and everyone can go bloody hell, that's a good song. And then they could include it in 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 all future Meridian tours. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'd love it. Perfect I, solution. Do you know what? Sod it, Meridian. Just pull it on the new album. Right, re- record a new version. You did it with Dryland. That was an H song from true. his other band. That's Record true. a version of Nothing to Declare and put it on the new Marillion album. There you go. And then it can become a Marillion song. The new Rothers solo towards the end. Great. You all got some ownership over it. What is interesting mm. uh, is, uh, is the band's response to this album. Oh. Yeah, you want to like hear that, that didn't don't even you? consider. Yeah. Well, this is uh, this must come later than the subsequent quotes that I'm going to read out. But he says, um, he says, I think Ian and like Steve like nothing to declare. Mark said he liked Cage. Pete said he liked the whole thing. Of course, he did. Bless him, because Pete's tastes are pretty w- wide ranging. Uh, he says, on an ego level, the whole album's the whole solo album thing's a bit complicated. I don't want I don't want to say, look, what do you think of my album? Because if they like it, they're not going to want to shower me with praise because they're my workmates. That's a bit oh, of a shame. Really? And if they don't like it, they don't want to tell me because they know they'd offend me. And if they think it's just okay, they don't want to tell me it's just okay because they'd offend me. So it's hard to even ask them because I don't think they'd feel comfortable even telling me. But it doesn't matter because I never made this album for those guys. I didn't make it for our audience. And there you go. My question from earlier answered. Yeah. He also said, I learned from mutual acquaintances that they're fairly positive about it. It seems there's a little bit of envy and none of the other guys will give their approval or disapproval face to face. Our bass player's wife, uh, Fiona, even thought some of my solo songs were better than anything she's heard from Marillion so far. 
Okay. <laughs> he said, I'm afraid things were probably a bit quiet there for a few days. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, wow. Yeah. So, and then he also went on to say, since I've been in the band, I have indeed tried to make the musicians in Marillion step out of their own little world. There is room because we don't have rules. How that works out is limited by everyone's individual taste and technique. You can't ask people to be different. With a solo album, you can build everything from the ground up. You can dive into a lake you've never swum in before. Steve and Ian also participated in solo projects and the way it looks, it worked out well for all of us. We all came back a bit more relaxed towards the direction of the band. So here we go. What's the what's this thing about you can't tell your colleagues if you like your work? <laughs> I know, you'd, think, that, you'd I mean, hope they were friends that they could... Is it because you don't want the other person to get a big head and think they're better than you? Or... It's weird, isn't it? I find that a bit odd. Because you think encouraging them and sort of going, Maybe that's new, great, yeah. I really enjoyed it, would bring your relation make your relationship stronger bring you closer together and then help you work better together maybe maybe it's a musician thing yeah i'm wondering that like do you find that in your industry that you can't compliment each other without naming names Mm. uh you know who i'm talking about i have a friend who who is a very successful screenwriter who did ask me once to read one of it i was the first person who read the script Mm-hmm. And he asked me to be honest with him about what I thought. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't talk to each other when I was honest for the best part of a year. Um, and it taught me a lesson because even though he sort of said, be honest, I can take it, I think I offended him. Right. And it taught me a lesson in as much as when people are asking for your feedback like that, unless it's in a professional capacity, mm. such as in my job, a script editor or... or you know, you're, as a scriptwriter, you're sending it to a script editor or producer. The notes you get back can be quite blunt, and but mm-hmm. that's that's the deal. When it's someone who you're a friend with, and they're asking for your feedback, what they're actually looking for is you reassuring them that it's not shit. Right. So, do you think maybe they, the band in this instance, for example, chose not to say anything because it's safer not to give compliments or criticism? And just be neutral. Well, look, because I if you know. give one, then you're expected to give the other. Or is it kind it, of... It, okay, uh, I mean, I know this is hugely off topic, but it's something that I'm really interested about. Growing up in Australia, at least where I grew up, giving each other compliments was not very common. Yeah. In At least in the Australian culture of North Sydney. When I moved over to Italy... They were very effusive with compliments. And even in London, I found people generally are more open to saying, oh, wow, you did that really well. Wow, I love that. I did not grow up in that kind of environment. And I think back in Australia, at least back then, it was because people felt a little bit threatened that if you give someone else a compliment, that kind of makes you worse than them. Mm. Whereas in the other cultures, it was they felt they didn't grow up with that first of all and then also it was kind of it was a bit safer to compliment another person because it's like well it's safe for me to build you up because we're friends so yeah I'm just wondering if it's a cultural thing that they possibly didn't say anything or whether it's a an ego thing where they felt maybe a little bit threatened by complimenting 
I think there's probably elements of all of that, but it's hard to sort of say without asking the band members themselves. Yeah, I know. Um, I mean, yeah, I but, know we won't have that. But what I think answer. is interesting is that H addresses, I think, a lot of what's going on on the song Accidental Man on This Strange Engine, ah. uh, which we will talk about more next week. Ah. But I do think, being delicate about it, I can't imagine Rothers giving being effusive with praise because he's... He's not effusive anyway. Yeah, he's a man of few words. Mm. So I couldn't so fair enough see on that his happening. Part. Yeah. Well, I mean, H said in another quote in another interview, he said, Mark told me that he likes some of it. Pete likes the whole album, bless him. Um, Steve said nothing, but I won't ask him either, which is, that's interesting uh, yeah, about their relationship. Um and Pete was the only one who asked for a copy. <laughs> oh, that's really yeah. sweet. I, he's such a sweet guy. He's really sweet. So he said, um, "He said, see, we we all wish each other the best on our solo projects, but not too much, since we do not want Marillion to suffer. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Of course. Of course, that makes sense. You don't want to praise him and tell him it's excellent in case he leaves. Well, there is that. He says, well, he goes oh, on to okay. say... Right, no, I get it now. It's not like the other members of Meridian save all their critics on my solo album and then sum up a list of all that's on the list. Don't know what that means. Sorry, this has all been Google translated. Um... The places Stuart Copeland did it when Sting made his first solo stuff, but he was really disappointed that Sting's solo career um, caused the police to end. Okay, yep, that yeah. makes more sense then. He said, and he said, that shouldn't happen to Marillion, but you can never tell how well it will develop in the future. I enjoy this solo trip. One of the things I like is smaller audiences and smaller places to play, blah, blah, blah. So mm. maybe, All maybe right. they worried that he'd leave. Yeah. Who knows? Um, yeah. And Marillion was the important thing that, you know, they'd already had one lead singer leave. But yeah. we don't know. Yeah, this is true. And again, H, to be honest, because he clearly didn't talk to them about those sort of things, he didn't know either. And he was guessing. Mm. Good point. Good point. Sorry to have gone on about it so much. But it was intriguing because, I mean, clearly it is an exceptional album. It's a fantastic album. Ice Cream Genius. Yeah, yeah. how could you not <laughs> say to him, wow, what you've created is amazing. Yeah, but that's your frame of reference. Exactly. But exactly, which is why I'm asking is if, from your point of view, having grown up in this country, whether it's a cultural thing mm. or whether you think it was a personal thing, and now I think maybe it was a personal thing because they didn't want to lose yeah. him. It's But for me, I, I think as well, I have learned the hard way that if someone asks you for your opinion on something, and I'm saying this to anyone who's ever sent me anything, mm. it's not worth it because I'm not going to give you an honest opinion unless it's, you know, because I do occasionally get people saying, can you have a look at this and tell me what you think? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, digitizer fans or whatever. And it puts me in a really difficult position because I don't want to disappoint someone who likes what I do Mm. because that's going to colour them against me, you know, because no one really wants someone to kind of be honest with them in those Mm. situations. I think it's different if it's like a job. Yeah. Um, Whereas this was something outside of Meridian. Mm. And it, it isn't worth damaging a relationship or a friendship or whatever just for the sake of honesty. It's not. So sometimes it's just better to say nothing. Mm. Say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them guessing. <laughs> no, 
or, or say nothing, or say nothing, or just be really effusive. It's yeah. not worth it. Yeah, it's and not also, worth it. You know, You're not their boss, so why, why, why not just say it's great? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and let's not be afraid to tell our friends when we think they've done something great or what we like about them. Yeah, and if they've done something shit, like or made something that's really crap, tell them it's great. But I'm, now I'm being, I know anytime if I ever show you anything, now I know it's, you're just going to lie to well, me. Well, it depends on the context. If it's, if it's to do with our work, <laughs> I will be honest with you. <laughs> my journal. I will give my you. My decorated. Oh, no, that's different. I love your journal. <laughs> it's like, oh, look at this mess. See, now you oh, can't trust lovely. me. Oh, that's lovely. I love your journal. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, also, it's a bit different. You're my wife. I can be honest with you in most situations. I'd hope so. Yeah, I always, I'm always honest with you. Like, you know. yeah, well, you tell me if you don't like something I'm wearing. Oh yeah, well, likewise. <laughs> you don't hold back. Likewise. <laughs> so anyway, so I think that brings us to the end of um, this little solo era, and then we're next into, well, the the independent years, or the independent castle years, as they were, where Meridian signed with Castle Communications and their albums were released on the inappropriately named Raw Power label. Wow. Which was generally reserved for heavy metal bands. Uh, so everyone, let's get into the train and drive to the... Drive? Start again. So what everyone, is going on? Let's get into the train carriage and drive to the castle for next week's episode on This Strange Engine. What? What? <laughs> I thought you were gonna. No, link. remember, remember your new decision to tell everyone that you think what they've come up with is great. Again, and I also have the caveat: you're my wife, and I can be honest with you. And that was terrible. <laughs> that was terrible. I thought you were gonna link it to like train engines. I was trying to. You yeah. get into the train, which has an engine by default. You get mm. into the train carriage. The train is driven yeah. by an engine. Yeah, if you voted mm, powered by an engine, and then we're driving ooh. to the castle. Yeah. Independent label. Yeah, if you if you can't explain your analogy, it's not working, is it? <laughs> oh dear. Uh, all right. So, um, well, if you want to hear some bonus stuff, you can go support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash mrbiwfo. There's a whole load of other stuff on there that, <laughs> try frankly, and turn a blind eye to yeah, it. just try and pretend it's not there. It's like kind of turning up to someone's house, and you know, you you knew them from work, and you know they're really sort of you know they they they're, they're you know normal. They're normal people, and then yeah, you go for dinner at their house one night, and, and they've they- got a taxidermy heron in their living room, and. A- two giant Star Wars helmets by their fireplace. That wasn't what I was going to you, You've literally just looked around this room and said what you can see. I was going to say you turn up at their house and there's like a half-naked clown juggling in a corner. Oh, whoa. Um, okay, so yours is way that's a different. bit what it's like if you go to our Patreon. But we are releasing... This episode hasn't gone out early, but we are doing at least a couple of bonus episodes a month. Um, and trying to get you these eps early. So the next one should be out early on there. Um, you can also check us out on Twitter and Facebook, Beampod on there. I don't do a lot on Twitter or Facebook, but I'm going to try to more going forwards. My voice is going. So we'll see you next week for This Strange Engine. You can all get writing now for our inevitable 
10 week post bag series. Yes, we've already had a couple. Yeah, beampod at gmail.com. See you on the train to the castle. Choo choo. Choo choo.